Good morning. Feel free to turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew as I read aloud the scripture reading, which is Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. It is a joy to be with you this morning and to have the opportunity yet again to bring God's word to you today. So before we turn to the Lord's word, let us turn unto him and ask that he be with our time at work in our hearts. Will you bow briefly with me? Lord God, you are a good and gracious God. Who that we were, while we were still sinners, you sent Christ to come and to die for us. That you did not leave us alone in our sin to perish. But even in the moments following the sin of our first parents, you set in motion a plan to save and redeem your people. Lord, we rejoice and give you all praise and glory for this work that you have done, for the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Lord, I pray that as we turn to your word this morning, as we listen to Jesus' words in his first sermon of repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, Lord, I pray that you would grant us a right understanding of what these words mean, that we may know them, cling to them, and live in light of them. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be at work in the hearts of everyone that is here today listening to your word, that the power of your word would go forth, for we know that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord, that it is not my words that carry any weight or power, but it is your words through me. Lord, be with our time this morning as we go to your word. In your name we pray, amen. So as I have opportunity to continue to preach in this season, we will continue to be in Matthew's gospel, working through this text verse by verse, chapter by chapter. I believe that God's Word is a beautiful gift to us that He left for us to read, to glean from until His return, and so we will endeavor to take each and every single verse and interpret it as it was intended to be understood. And so if you were here a few weeks ago, we began our series in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, where we looked at Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And that culminated in verse 11 when the devil left him and the angels came and began ministering to him. We are not sure how much time has passed from verse 11 to where our text in verse 12 begins, but we see that much has changed. And so we will go through verses 12 through 16 to provide us context for our passage this morning, but we will spend the bulk of our time in verse 17 looking at the words of Jesus in His first sermon. But for context, let's begin in verse 12. 
For Matthew says, now when he had heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. John being spoken of here is none other than John the Baptist, where if you flip one page over in your Bibles or simply look to the left, we see John and his purpose in ministry, that he was one who came to prepare the way of the Lord, preaching the same message that our Lord preaches in Matthew 4.17 when he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John came to prepare the way for the Lord, to preach a message of repentance and belief for the one who has come to save man from their sins. And because Matthew tells us that now John has been arrested and imprisoned, we know that his ministry is effectively over, that he has done what he has come to do, and he will spend the rest of his life in prison before his execution in Matthew 14. And so, with his ministry coming to an end, as one who was uh, called to prepare the way of the Lord, we can rightly understand that it is time for our Lord's ministry to begin. But before it does, we see one more action that Jesus must attend to, and that is to relocate to Galilee. For we've seen in chapter 3 and chapter 4 that there are three things that Jesus is called to do to fulfill what has been written before He begins His earthly ministry. He goes to be baptized, He is led to the wilderness to be tempted, and He relocates to Galilee which was foretold in the prophet Isaiah of where the coming Messiah's ministry would begin. So now that all of these things have been accomplished, we find Jesus beginning to preach. And He preaches a message that is simple and yet profound when He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus in this passage gives us a foundational doctrine as the first doctrine that He supplies to us in His earthly ministry. Now, I want us to be careful to not be intimidated by this word doctrine, for I know that when people start saying things like doctrine or words that end in ology or the Greek text says this, most of us can go, whoa, this sermon may not be for me. But I can assure you that there is nothing intimidating about this word doctrine, for as I mean it and intend it this morning, it is simply these essential truths for Christians. It is the things that we must know, we must understand, and we must get right. For this doctrine of repentance is what Jesus builds His ministry on. It is at the core and the foundation of all of His teachings as you continue through the gospel. That as we get into the Sermon on the Mount and the other teachings of Christ, we see repentance at its very core. For God has come to rule the heart's of His people. He has come to wage war, but not against Rome as many thought. Many thought He would come and end the reign of this tyrannical government that was oppressing the Jews, but instead He has come to wage war against sin for the dominion of the hearts of man. And this repentance that He speaks of is a grace that is made possible and available to us only through His sacrifice. It is the gift that He came to provide, and He speaks diligently of it. For Jesus, in His great love for us, is not sending us off on a wild scavenger hunt to find and understand what truth is, but instead He is coming and speaking it plainly to us, and in so doing, demonstrating His great love, care, and value of His people. 
And so my purpose this morning, as we examine this text in Matthew 4, 17, is to walk us through what repentance is not, the misperceptions and deceptions of repentance that many of us may have come to believe. And in contrast, to turn and look at what repentance truly is, as Christ speaks of it here in Matthew 4, 17. We will look at how repentance is essential to the gospel, and just as the believers in the early church responded to Peter's presentation of the gospel in Acts chapter 2 by saying, what then shall we do? We will also pose that same question to ourselves here this morning. And so in the first place, we will speak to what repentance is not, the distortions, misperceptions, and deceptions about repentance that many of us have come to believe or to know. For as we will go through this list, we will see that many of these things are what I would call have-truths, where there are elements of them that do take place in true, genuine repentance, as Christ speaks of it in Matthew 4, 17. Yet, there is something off in each of them. For we know that a half-truth is no truth at all, and we want to be diligent to be able to recognize what is true repentance and what is not And so, in the first place, I would submit to you that repentance is not simply an apology. Many of us have been told for most of our lives that these two simple and magic words can right and restore any wrong. How many of us have wandered into the bedroom of a sibling, much at the prompting of a parent, to say, go apologize to your brother and sister, and begrudgingly we turn and say, I'm sorry, okay, can we move on? How many times in a professional setting have we gone to a coworker or to a client that we have offended to say, I'm sorry, for the sake of professional dignity or career restoration? Or men, how many times have we gone to our wives after a heated argument with this saying in the back of our minds of happy wife, happy life? And even though we may not be convinced that we were in the wrong, we know that it will not bode well for us to die on this hill. And so, we apologize, seeking to restore what has been wronged. But Scripture tells us that this is not the heart of one who is truly repentant, one who is waging war against sin, but it is simply the attitude of checking a box. David speaks to this in Psalm 51 which is after he has been confronted by Nathan in his sin of murdering Uriah and committing adultery with Bathsheba. And David, as he cries out, he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so if repentance lives in our words alone, it is not truly repentance at all. In the second place, I would submit to you that repentance is not simply worldly regret. For worldly regret is when we feel sorry for something because it has backfired on us, not because we have offended a holy God. We can be terrified of the consequences of our sin without hating the sin itself. Esau is a perfect example to us of worldly regret. For he is off 
hunting, and he comes back to the tent, and he is starving, and Jacob has prepared this soup, Jacob being his younger brother. And Esau demands a bowl of it, and Jacob, seeing an opportunity, says, give me your birthright, and I will give you the soup. And Esau, it says, hated his birthright and chose to satisfy an empty stomach over the God-ordained role and blessing that he had given to the firstborn through the birthright. And if we look in Hebrews chapter 12, where the example of Esau is called back to mind, it says that Esau wept great tears over what he had done. But then a haunting verse follows where it says that he was not able to repent, that he was distraught because his plan had backfired on him. He saw the earthly consequences of what he had done, but there was no remorse for how he had sinned against a holy God. We can take great confidence in 2 Corinthians 7 when the Lord tells us that He will never reject true repentance, but He reminds us that He has no place for worldly regret. Repentance is not worldly regret. In the third place, I would submit to you that repentance is not simply the changing of outward appearance. For how often are we inclined to trade an obvious sin for a hidden one? We may trade obvious pride for hidden lust, or public judgment for private anger, or lying for legalism. But we have not repented, we have simply traded one master for another. For even though our master has changed, we remain a servant unto sin. Let us not be solely about the business of changing only that which man can see, but let us be about the business of changing that which God looks at, which is the heart. We see an example of this in 1 Samuel 16 when God has rejected Saul as king over Israel. And he calls Samuel to go to Jesse to select from his son the next and future king of Israel. So Samuel shows up, and as we know, David would ultimately go on to be selected as king, but he is out attending to the flock, and his 11 brothers are there, and Samuel shows up and goes, wow, this is great. What a great crop of potential kings. And he goes from one to the next to the next, going, this man is impressive. He is tall, built for war, good-looking, very much giving the appearance of a king. And yet God stops Samuel and says, no, Samuel, do not look at the things which man looks at, but look at the heart, which is what I look at. God is not interested in just the change of our outward posture, but He is interested in the changing of our hearts. And in the fourth and final place, I would submit to you that repentance is not simply a resolution against sin. For this is the message of self-help books, is it not? Or the prosperity gospel, that you can fix yourself, that you can live your best life now. But yet we may resolve against sin, not because it is sinful, but because it is painful. We may resolve to fight sin in order to fix our marriage. We may resolve to fight against sin in an effort not to drive our children away. We may resolve to fight against sin because it is hindering our career advancement, or we may resolve to fight against sin because when we look in the mirror, we don't like what we see. 
and all of these things are good things in and of themselves, but they miss the point of repentance. Repentance is not about getting our life back on track. It is about restoring right relationship with God. These things, Lord willing, will be the fruits of true and genuine repentance, but they are not to be its drivers. Repentance is not simply a resolution against sin. I hope that as we go through that list of things that we see clearly that these things almost touch on the heart of godly repentance. They are so close, yet they are missing the true call of the gospel in our repentance. And so we must now turn to look at the glorious truth of what repentance is, this grace that has been given unto us so that we may repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And before I go through these things, it is important to understand that each of these things in and of themselves is not indicative of true repentance, but it is the sum of all of them that completes our repentance to a holy God. And so the first thing that I would submit to you that repentance is, it is seeing sin clearly. The first step in repentance takes place when our eyes are opened and we behold the sinfulness of sin. When our pride is dull and our high view of ourselves is broken, we begin to see sin for what it is, as it is vile, corrupt, condemning, and offensive to a holy God. Luke 15 in the story of the prodigal son gives us a beautiful example of what this looks like, for many of us will be familiar with the story that the son came to his father and demanded his inheritance, and his father gave it to him, and he went off and squandered it on all kinds of debaucherous behavior. And he finds himself looking at the slop that is fed to the animals and wishing for some of that. And he comes to a moment of realization that he must return to his father's house. But he does not simply get up and go to his father and go, hey, dad, uh, can we just get back to the way that things were? He clearly sees himself and his relationship with his father in that moment when he is completely broken. And he says, I will arise and go to my father. He understands what he must do, but he gives us a picture into his heart when he says, and I will say to my father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. He recognizes that his sin is not against his father alone, but against a holy God. And he realizes what his sin means when he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. We see that sin makes us unworthy. We see in our sin our desperate need for a Savior, and thus begins the first step of repentance. In the second place, I would submit to you that repentance is grieving of sin. For every sin that we commit offends a holy God, and it must be paid for. For each of our sins pierced our Savior on the cross, and that should give us cause for great sorrow. The great hymn says that it was our sin that held Him there until it was accomplished. Because of this, we can no longer look upon our sin with fond memories or with joy or with laughter 
but we can only look unto it with great sorrow for what it cost our Lord. Likewise, in Luke, in chapter 7, we're given a beautiful picture of what this sorrow looks like. We see that there's this woman, the woman of the city, which means that she was a prostitute, who was a great sinner, has come to Jesus. Jesus is dining with the Pharisees, who would have been the last people on earth that she would have ever wanted to encounter, for they would judge her, rebuke her, look down on her, and condemn her. And yet she knew that she needed to go to the Lord, for her sorrow for her sin was so great. So she brings with her a bottle of perfume, which was valued at almost three years of wages, the most valuable thing almost assuredly that she owned. And she poured it out on our Lord's feet, and she began to weep so much that the tears covered the feet of Jesus, and she had to wipe them away with her hair because the sorrow she felt in her heart poured out through her eyes as she encountered our Lord. Thomas Watson, the Puritan writer, says that the sorrow for sin is not superficial, but it is holy agony. If we are to be a repentant people, we must be people who experience great sorrow for sin, for we know what it cost. In the third place, I would submit to you that true gospel repentance is the confession of sin. That a man must cry out to God about the state of his soul, for he can do nothing else. The burden is heavy, and he cannot hide it, and he wants not to hide it. I love the way that Christian puts it in Pilgrim's Progress when he says, I'd advise you then to quickly get rid of your burden. For until then, you will never be settled in your mind or enjoy the benefits of the blessings that God has given you. Just as we must confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we must also confess that we are not. We must confess our need for a Savior and that we need Him to fight and kill our sin. If we do not confess, then Scripture says we are deceived believing that we have no sin. True repentance must be confessed. And in the last place, what I would submit to you is the fourth point of true gospel repentance is the turning away from sin. Our hearts must change and our lives must change. This is the contrast to the point of what repentance is not, where it says it cannot simply be a resolution of sin. It cannot just be this idea of fixing the outward self, but it must be a heart change that overflows into a life change. For dying to sin is the lifeblood of repentance. For he, for who has been saved that has not turned away from sin? J.C. Ryle puts it this way, he says, he puts off the old man. What God commands, he now desires to practice, and what God forbids, he now desires to avoid. He strives in all ways to keep clear of sin, to war with sin, and to get victory over sin. He breaks off sharply from bad ways and bad companions. We must turn from our sin and never turn back. We see this played out in the story and example of Lot's wife. 
Whereas the Lord was raining down wrath and judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, He commanded Lot and his family to run, to turn away from the city, and to look, and to not look back. And as they run, Lot's wife is so overcome by her love of her former life and her care for those people that she cannot help but turn and look, and in that moment she becomes a pillar of salt and dies. Once we leave a life of sin, there is nothing for us to turn back to. For we have turned unto the one who is able and willing to forgive us and sustain us and carry us through to heaven. So now that we have looked at what repentance is not and we have clearly defined what repentance is, we must view this repentance in light of the gospel. That the Lord in Matthew 4, 17 does not call us to do things that we are incapable of doing. He does not call us to pay for our own sins. He does not call us to figure it out and work hard so that we may earn our salvation. He simply says, repent, acknowledge your sin, and my free gift of grace and forgiveness will be bestowed on you. For repentance is a grace that is acceptable and accessible to all. For the gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to repent and believe. These things are often described as two sides of the same coin. That repentance is the act of turning away from sin and faith or belief is turning unto the Lord that we must do both of those things simultaneously. That as we turn from sin, we must turn unto the one who is worthy. And if we are to turn unto God, then we must forever forsake and abandon sin. For repentance is a grace of God, and He deals graciously with us. For Jesus left heaven, lived a humble life, suffered and ultimately died on the cross, and He died for our sins, for yours and for mine. And so when He calls us to repent, we can know that these words that flow from His mouth Come to us with the deepest of love and the deepest of clarity. Repent and believe. And so, as Peter preached the sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where he clearly communicated the gospel to all who were gathered, the crowd was pierced to the heart and asked Peter, What then shall we do? Many of us have heard the gospel throughout the course of our life. Maybe we have read it in Scripture. Maybe this morning hearing it preached is the first time. Maybe you have seen it or heard it through the testimony of a coworker or a friend or a loved one, maybe a son or a daughter. And dear brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to ignore this call to repent no longer but come to the throne of grace, repent and be saved. For the gospel elicits a response. There is no neutrality in it. For we will either accept it or reject it. There is no other option. For we know that life is real, life is earnest, life is weighty, and it is passing away. For Jesus tells us so in Matthew 4:17 when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand 
He lovingly warns us that judgment is coming, and yet He offers us an invitation to escape the wrath that is ahead and to draw near to God. God has put His affairs in order. For all that He has said He will do, He has done. Are your affairs in order? Are you prepared for the Lord to return? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and we are not promised tomorrow. The Lord in His kindness has tarried this long, and maybe He has tarried so that you would have an opportunity to repent and believe. We do not know why He has delayed His coming, but we know, as is evidence that we are still here, that He has not come back yet, and so there is still time. Go to the throne of grace and repent and be forgiven. So as we conclude our time this morning looking at gospel repentance, I have three points of application to close out our time. And the first is the famous quote of, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Throughout the course of a war, battles are won and lost, and so it is in the way of the Christian life. We will have victories over sin, and we will stumble with sin, and we will backslide. But we are never to stop fighting hard to win each battle, for we know that the victory is assured through Christ. We must have great love for Christ because He went to the cross, and a great hatred of sin because it sent Him there. As Hebrews 12.1 tells us, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us be a people who are actively about the work of killing sin. The second point of application that I would have for us this morning is to not fall prey to the evil devices of Satan. For Satan will come to us and convince us that repentance is easy. It is no big thing prior to our sin. And once we have committed a sin, he will come back and say to us, it is impossible. You are beyond saving. But let us not be so deceived. For repentance is a grace provided at a great cost, and we should never approach it lightly. Yet, we also must be keenly aware that our Lord is rich in mercy, seated on the throne of grace, and He stands ready to forgive all who would come. For no sin is so great that it cannot be covered by the blood of Christ. And lastly, let us look always unto our glorious Savior. For Jesus did not come for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. He came not to condemn, but to give life. He tells all who are weary to come to Him, and in Him they will find rest. He says to all who will come to Him, He will receive. He gave His life as a ransom for many. He says, knock, and the door will be opened. He sits on His throne on high, interceding for us, that in spite of our sin, He has made us co-heirs with Christ. He came to earth and made clear the way to salvation. Let us look unto Jesus, consider Jesus, and run to Jesus.
Dear brothers and sisters, as I close this morning, I will say it again, that if you are here and hearing for the first time this great news that repentance and forgiveness is available to you, then I would encourage you to delay no longer. For our Lord in His very first sermon in Matthew 4, 17 says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And in His very last words that He leaves us with before ascending on high in Luke chapter 24, verse 47, He says, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in His name to all the nations. This is a great matter of deepest importance but He is faithful and just to forgive all who would come and repent of their sins. Delay no longer. Turn to the throne of grace and repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let us pray. Lord, our sin is a weighty thing. For we know what its payment cost, that as Christ went willingly to the cross to die the death that we deserve, to pay the price that we could not afford, He did so willingly with great love for us that through no work of our own we might have the ability to repent, to see our sin, to sorrow over our sin, to confess our sin and to turn from our sin that through your finished work we may be restored to right relationship with the Father. Lord, I pray for all who have heard your word this morning that we would repent anew every day, not by means of re-earning our salvation, but by throwing off all that which hinders us, by never allowing ourselves to become comfortable or complacent with our sin. Lord, for those that have not yet turned unto you, Lord, I pray that you would stir in their hearts, that they would see their sin as you see it, that they would repent, turn, and believe. Lord, we pray that your word would have its due effect in our life. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.